Good morning. The text from which I will be basing my message this morning are found in 2 Peter chapter 1, and I'll begin there. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 20. It says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The second verse is found in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Some of you probably have it memorized. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Today I'm going to be speaking about what is known in theology as the doctrine of inspiration. And I know I just probably lost half of you right there. What I mean by that is this. This is a Bible, and we say this is the Word of God. But what exactly do we mean by that, and what are the implications? That's what we're doing here this morning. You may have heard of the story where a father takes his young son to a church service, and at the end, after the sermon, they head toward the back, and the little boy sees these large bronze plaques on the wall with names etched in, and he says, Daddy, what are these? And his father says, Son, these are there to, these are here to honor the men who have died in the service. And the little boy thoughtfully says, the first or the second. And some of you may be wondering if this message is something like that. Hopefully not. I'm going to try to explain everything along the way here. But my goal is for us to be able to understand and maybe even articulate what exactly we mean when we say the Bible is the Word of God. So, let us begin. I'd like to start with a quote from the late Bible teacher, Charles C. Ryrie. And he says this, The doctrine of inspiration is not something theologians have forced on the Bible. Rather, it is a teaching of the Bible itself, a conclusion derived from the data contained in it. And whatever one may think of the Bible, it, like any other witness, has the right to testify on its own behalf. Some take exception to the validity of such evidence on the ground that it is self-testimony and therefore may not be true. Granted, self-testimony may or may not be true, but it needs to be heard. So our mode or method of proceeding this morning will be to examine some of the data contained in this Scripture to see what the Bible teaches about itself. Now, notice that this is an this is not an argument for inspiration. I am not arguing for the inspiration this morning. If I had time, and I probably don't because I even went over in the first service, I was going to show you what an outline of that might look like. If you were to argue inspiration, how you go from uh, the truth about reality to the Bible is the Word of God. I probably don't have time to do that. If you're interested, uh, my email is on the little handout that you guys have. To start then, we're talking about the doctrine of inspiration. And by the way, if you have the handout, if you have your 
What are those called? That thing. There's a little piece of paper in there. On one side, there's an outline of how I'll be proceeding in case you want to follow along. On the other side of it, there are terms or definitions. If you need to reference those at any time during this little spiel of mine, please feel free. Uh, as long as you're able to, everybody should be able to, to keep up just fine. So I'm going to aspire to inspire you about inspiration before you expire. I just thought of that. How's that? <laughs> All right, let's try this. When we're talking about the doctrine of inspiration, let's start with the word doctrine. What does doctrine mean? It says doctrine of inspiration. Webster in the 1828 dictionary says, in a general sense, doctrine is whatever is taught. Hence, a principle or position in any science, whatever is laid down as true by an instructor or master. The doctrines of the gospel are the principles or truths taught by Christ and his apostles. The doctrines of the philosopher Plato are the principles which he taught. Hence, a doctrine may be true or... Here we go. This is an interactive portion of our program whenever I do this. It may be a mere tenet or an opinion. Paul urged Titus, but as for you, speak things which are fitting for sound doctrine. So there's sound doctrine. A few verses later, he says, In all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity of doctrine. But he also says in 1 Timothy 4 that there are doctrines of demons. He tells Timothy in the letter of Ephesus, Remain on at Ephesus so you may instruct others not to teach strange doctrine. So there's strange doctrine also. So a doctrine is just a teaching. And when we're talking about the doctrine of inspiration here this morning, we're trying to discover what the Bible teaches about inspiration. We'll find out what inspiration is here momentarily. Now, does anybody know, before I keep going here, when is the first time the writing of the Bible is mentioned in the Bible itself? In other words, when you're reading along in your Bible, like you guys read it once a year, I know you knew, when is the first time you come across the writing of the Bible in the Bible? Is Miles here? He's not allowed to answer. All right. Does anybody know? Pastor Brian's not allowed to answer this either. Anybody want to guess who's involved? Just shout it out if you think you know. Moses! Somebody said Moses. Five dollars. Who was that, Judy? Oh, sorry. <laughs> That's on you. Moses where? Doing what? What do you guys think? Sinai? You would, think it's, you would think it's Sinai, right? Or Mount Horeb as the other dialectical name. That's not it. That's not it. It actually comes a handful of chapters before that. When Israel comes through the Red Sea and the people get manna from heaven and water comes out of the rock, they're marching along and a group called the Amalekites look down and they say, hey, here is a people that are ripe for plunder. And they go and attack them. This is in, this is in uh, Exodus 17. And it says, Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us to go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Like he's got his magic stick. And you guys know this story, right? Moses goes up to the top. He's with Aaron and Hur, H-U-R. And Joshua and the rest of the Israelites are fighting 
the Amalekites below. And what happens? Moses lifts up his staff and what? Israel starts winning. But then he's old, right? So he starts to get the shakes. He does this after a while. I had the students do this in Sunday school. Brianna, you won that, I think. She's like, what? He gets the shakes. So, so what happens when the staff drops down? What happens to Israel? They start losing. They're losing the battle. So Aaron and Hur take a big boulder and they put it under Moses for a seat. And then each one holds an arm up so they can keep his arms up until the battle ends. And that's how Israel wins the battle. Strange story. But that's what happens. And then after that, it says in verse 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua. And that's it. You were expecting something life-changing. This is a little anticlimactic, I know. But that's it. That's the first mention of the writing of the Bible in the Bible. So what? Well, this isn't the origins of the Bible necessarily, but it's the origins of this story in the Bible. And how it came into existence seems a very natural process. It's like something you might do after a family reunion. You know, my uncle so-and-so did this. In a word, it's human. But we just read a few minutes ago that no prophecy, meaning the prophetic writings, the whole of Scripture, came into existence by an act of the human will. And yet, this seems to be, for all intents and purposes, very normal. Very normal. So, right out of the gate, we are faced with a mystery. Notice I didn't say contradiction. Mystery. And we're going to find out that the Bible, as the Word of God, claims to be both fully divine and fully human. Parts of it seem like it came just right out of heaven. Parts of it seem like a first century text message. Okay? We got both. That's what the data shows. So we're going to start with the divine. Both directly and indirectly, it testifies to its authority. Let's start with directly. The Bible claims to be the Word of God. We already read 2 Peter. Let's go back to 2 Timothy. All Scripture is God-breathed, it says. All Scripture is inspired by God. Some of your translations have God-breathed. Now, the Greek word here, theopneustos, means God-breathed. And R.C. Sproul writes at this, Though the word is usually translated inspired, which means breathed in, technically the Greek word refers to breathing out, which may more accurately be translated expired. And I'm trying to get this all to you before you guys expire here this morning. The point is that the work of divine inspiration is accomplished by divine expiration. Since Paul says the Scripture is breathed out by God, Scripture's origin or source must be God Himself. So the, so the Bible claims for itself divine origins in these verses. That's what's meant by inspiration. It's God's special revelation of himself, a self-disclosure, if you will. God discloses himself to humans in words, and that's what's meant by inspiration. Thus, the doctrine of inspiration means the teaching about how the Bible's words are God's words. Everybody got that? 
We tracking? Cool. Indirectly, there's another way the Bible makes the claim to be the Word of God, and that is found in the expression, whatever the Bible says, God says. Whatever the Bible says, God says. I'm going to go over three quick examples. Stay with me here. Genesis 12.3 says this, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. To whom is God speaking in this verse? Genesis 12. Who is this? Who's got it? Abraham. There we go. That's Genesis 12.3. But look in the New Testament when Galatians says this. Look what it says. The Scripture preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, same thing. So God speaks directly in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament says the Scripture says it. So those are used interchangeably. What the Bible says, God says. Again, Exodus 9.16, But indeed for this reason I've allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and to proclaim my name throughout the earth. To whom is God through Moses, through Aaron, speaking? Who's he speaking to? To whom is he speaking in this one? Exodus. Pharaoh. Look what Paul says. Romans 9. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, and it quotes the same thing over again. I don't have to read it all. You get the point. What the Scripture says, God says. Last one, Psalm 2.1. Why are the nations in an uproar, the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together. Acts says, O Lord, it's You who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David Your servant said, Why do the Gentiles rage and the nations devise vain things? It quotes Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a Scripture. The New Testament says, It is You, Lord, who said this. Therefore, you can see that the Scripture and God's words are interchangeable by the data of the Scripture. Everybody got that? You got that point? All right. So, notice that the divine authority, inspiration, includes the following. Oh, sorry. This is the list of what God says, the Bible says. If you want to do a personal quiet time or something on that, just email me and I'll get you this. But the Bible is divine. Divine authority includes the following. All that is written. All Scripture is inspired by God or God-breathed. The very words of God. Paul says, Now we receive not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know things freely given to us by Him, which things we also speak, not by human wisdom, but those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. So inspired also means the words of Scripture, specifically. It even includes the tenses of verbs when Jesus said to the Sadducees when they asked him the question of if a woman marries five guy or seven husbands because they all died whose whose husband is who, who's going to be your husband during the resurrection and Jesus is quick to point out that the scripture says that God wasn't the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob but it says I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Present tense, not past tense. Even the verbs are inspired by God. So we have all that is written down to the very words, even the tenses of, ver tenses of verbs. Finally, the smallest parts of words. Not the smallest letter or the least stroke 
not a dotting of an I or crossing of a T, if you will in English, will perish from the law until all has been fulfilled. So God inspired letters? Yeah. The Scripture doesn't say to Abraham, and to your seeds, but and to your seed, says Paul. Take off that S. It makes a big difference. Down to the very letters the Scripture is inspired. So it follows from this that the locus of inspiration is the written word, the Scripture or the Bible itself. In other words, when you ask the question, what is it that is inspired? Where is inspiration supposed to be found? Where is it? Is it in the prophets? Because they're dead. Is it in the living and dynamic body of Christ who we have the Holy Spirit in us? I hope not because we disagree over all kinds of stuff. We can't even agree over the color of the carpet. So I hope it's not in us. Where is it? It is found in the written text. That's the answer. Where is inspiration found? In the text. So next time someone comes to you and says, I've had a dream, God spoke to me. Measure it up against the text. The text is the only rule or authority. Now, it doesn't mean that the authors or even their ideas weren't originally inspired. It's just saying the only place we can look to say God's stamp of approval is here is this place. Y'all follow me? All right. And as far as I know, the most often you'd use phrase in the Bible is, it is written. That settled the debate. That settled the debate for Jesus and Satan out in the wilderness. Satan tempts him three times, and every time Jesus responds with a quote from Deuteronomy, says it at least 60 times in the New Testament. It is written. That settled the debate. All right, not only is inspiration verbal, meaning the very words are God's words, but it's also plenary, plenary, which means full or or entire or complete, all of it. Plenary inspiration refers to all the Bible teaches, implies, or entails both spiritually and factually. This point gets to the very heart of the question, Are all parts of the Bible inspired? The answer is yes. That's what plenary inspiration means. God says everything that is written in it. That's what that means. Not only is inspiration verbal, extending to the words, and plenary, extending to everything taught or implied or entailed, but it's also equal. This answers the person who says, okay, so all the parts of the Bible are inspired, but can't some parts be more inspired than others? No. No. Truth is not found in degrees. Now, somebody could be nearer to the truth, and somebody can be farther from the truth, but something is either true or false. Law of excluded middle. Back there, students, I'm looking at you guys. A thing cannot be both true and false simultaneously. Law of non-contradiction in logic. If it's true, it's true. If it's false, it's false. Law of, law of what, Brianna? Identity, I'll say it for you. Truth is not found in degrees. Something's either true or false. If there's equal inspiration, then everything that's said is inspired. Okay? The Bible's equally inspired from the first letter penned or engraved 
to the last letter. The Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end. Now, that doesn't mean that some parts of the Bible aren't more important than others. For example, the fact that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and was raised is a little more important than at the end of 3 John where he says, by the way, the people that are with me say, what's up? Okay? And when's the last time you heard a sermon just on that point? You probably won't. That's not to say it's not important, but it's just to say that it doesn't carry equal weight in the sense of importance with salvation. You understand what I'm saying there? Okay? Some stuff we need to know to be saved. We don't need to know who John is with. Hardly know any people that Paul addresses at the end of his letters. When he says, this person says hi, this person says hi. We don't know these people. Just means that everything that God says has equal inspiration. It's all his. All right. So God's inspiration is verbal, plenary, and equal. How you guys doing? Everybody holding up? We lose anybody yet? I search around. In this church, we call you out by name. No, I'm just kidding. We don't do that. All right, there are two more important qualities to mention now that are couched in God's nature. And if you haven't fallen asleep yet, I'm about to get you. Here we go. That is to say, because God's inspired the Bible, it's His words that are verbal, plenary, and equal, the Bible is also infallible and inerrant. What in the world does that mean? It's in your notes if you don't want to wait. But the argument goes something like this. Stick with me here. Premise number one, God cannot err. We're going to say that like Martin Luther did. You ever seen that movie? It's great. God cannot err, premise one. Premise two, the Bible is God's word. That's what inspiration means. That's what the data we just covered demonstrates. The Bible is God's word. Therefore, conclusion, the Bible cannot err. We've already seen that Scripture, scripture testifies to this second point, so let's go to the first. God cannot err. What is the evidence in the Scripture to suggest this? Well, Hebrews 6, by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie. So God made a covenant with two things that are unchangeable. Number one, His Word. The second one is, who knows it? Himself. Malachi 3.6, I the Lord do not change. We have a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie, Titus 1-2. Let God be true and every man a liar, Paul says. Not women. Y'all tell the truth all the time. Jesus said, thy word is truth. And the psalmist declares, all your words are true. Now, If you make an error in what you say, then your words aren't true. If everything you say is always true, then you can't make an error. So, if God cannot err, and the Bible is the Word of God, then it follows inescapably that the Bible cannot err. And for this reason, we say that it is both inerrant and infallible. Now, what do these two words mean? R.C. Sproul explains them this way, and if you've never picked up Sproul, if you need something clear and concise and you've got to figure out what the words mean, pick up R.C. Sproul. He explains everything beautifully all the time. He's great. Infallibility means that something cannot err, while inerrancy means that it does not err. Some of you can't get over that I'm saying err instead of error right now, and that's all right. We'll get you there. 
Infallibility describes ability or potential. It describes something that cannot happen. Inerrancy describes actuality. All right, so check this out. We can have, I can have, well, maybe I can't have, you could have an inerrant spelling test. All right? If you meticulously spell every word correctly, then by definition, you have an inerrant exam. Good job. You get 100%. That's good. However, during your test, just because it's inerrant doesn't mean you were infallible while you took it. Could you have made a mistake? Yes. Did you make a mistake? No. So if you can make a mistake, you are fallible. If you are unable to make a mistake, you are infallible. That's what that word means. And if you don't make a mistake, then your work is inerrant. Everybody got those two? One talks about what the product of what's done without error, that's inerrant. One talks about the ability itself. If you can't make an error, you are infallible. And there are only three people that are infallible. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay. Not a jot or a tittle. Let's keep going here. All right, so far we covered the divine authority of the Bible and how inspiration applies to it. That's the divine aspect. You guys hold up through the human part? You ready? All right. In case you're wondering why we said all these in the first place, let me direct your attention just real quick back to Charles Ryrie. Formerly, all that was necessary to affirm one's belief in full inspiration was the statement, I believe in the inspiration of the Bible. But when some did not extend inspiration to the words of the text, it became necessary to say, I believe in the verbal inspiration of the Bible. To counter the teaching that not all parts of the Bible were inspired, one had to say, I believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. Then because some did not want to ascribe total accuracy to the Bible, it was necessary to say, I believe in the verbal plenary infallible and inerrant inspiration of the Bible. And then infallible and inerrant all of a sudden become limited to matters of faith. It just gets to be a mess, all right? But that's what's going on here. The basic gist, the thrust of divine inspiration simply says it refers to the words of the Bible or the biblical text. That's what divine inspiration is. These are from God. It refers to the entire or complete text. It refers to the entire or complete text Equally, no portion is more inspired than the other, even though some portions may be more important. And because God cannot lie, it follows that the inspired text is both inerrant, it has no errors in the original documents, which we call the autographs, by the way, and it's infallible, meaning it cannot err. Or to put it positively, what do you call something that cannot, if you have something and it can't have an error in it, what do you call it? Holy trustworthy. That's the flip side of it, okay? So you've got something that's wholly trustworthy. If there can't be an error in it, you can trust it. That's pretty good. All right. Any questions up to this point? I know you're not supposed to do that during a sermon, but how are you guys holding up? Everybody tracking? Somebody's thinking about a question. All right. So not only does the Bible have divine origin, but it also has human authors. And people get bent out of shape at this point because... You know, you want something that we want the heavenly handbook that just dropped right out of, just, just like it appeared to Joseph Smith on five tablets 
in Reformed Egyptian. That's what we want. We don't have that. The Bible is indeed a theanthropic book. Theos, meaning God. Anthropos, meaning man. Its origins are in man and God. Now, God is the ultimate cause. Humans are secondary causes. But some people think that the, the Bible is more human than God. Those are the liberals. Some people think it's more God than human. Those are the fundamentalists. Both positions seem to be incorrect based on the data. And remember that just like denying the humanity of Christ, uh, denying the humanity of the Bible is no less of a doctrinal deviation. While the, the, the consequences may be different, all right? If you deny the humanity of Christ, then you can't be saved. Uh, but it's, it's just as much of a deviation to say that the Bible is not a human work. All right, let's keep going here. Scripture, scripture supports the Bible in a twofold way as being a human work. And as you could probably guess if you looked at your outline, directly, indirectly. Or I'm going to start with the indirect first. Again, R.C. Sproul says, it is clear from a study of the Bible itself that the author's individual styles remain intact. So, I'm going to put something up here that's going to look like six-point font to you guys, but I'm going to read it. The Bible has human authors, as is most evident, nearly 40 persons. Moses, Joshua, Samuel, Ezra, Nehemiah, David, Solomon, Lemuel, Asaph, sons of Korah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, you guys know it. All right? Human authors. It's also written in a human language. There's no Holy Ghost Greek. There's no ecstatic utterances. It's interesting that, that that verse is pointed out in the New Testament, the tongues of angels. Every time I see an angel speaking in the Bible, it's in a language that's known. Okay? Greek, Koine Greek was the common trade language of the first century. Old Testament was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. These are just vehicles for which to communicate. But it's human language. Third, there are literary styles. Try reading John and then read Luke. Luke is a little more exacting. His writing is a little more sophisticated. It's not as easy to read. There are different styles to these guys. There are also different literary forms. There's narrative, like Samuel and Kings. That's the fun stuff to read. We skip Leviticus, usually. You know, poetry, as in Job and Psalms. We have parables in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, symbolism in Revelation. These are all different literary forms. We use these in our everyday language. The Bible reflects different human perspectives. David spoke from a shepherd's point of view. The Lord is my shepherd, he says. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. That's a man who was a shepherd talking. That's what he did. He was a shepherd. Solomon was a philosopher king. Ever read Ecclesiastes? Most philosophical book in Scripture, I think. The uh, Acts of the Apostles, or better, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, are very uh, historical. Luke was very exacting in penning those. Also reflects different human thought patterns. Anybody ever try to read Romans in one sitting? It's tough. It's tough. It's a tight-knit logical argument. There's a lot of therefores in there. And every time you see a therefore, what do you do? You underline it to see what it's there for. Therefore is the conclusion of something that's come before it. Okay? Everybody speaking up here with a headset on is stupid. 
Chris is speaking up here with a headset. Therefore, you guys know it. You guys said it in your hearts. That's just equally a sin. So, All right. Oh, I forgot this one. This one's cool. There's human forgetfulness. That one's important. You guys remember Paul at the beginning of 1 Corinthians where he says something like this. I've heard from the household of Chloe that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For some say you're of Paul, some Apollos, some Cephas, still others of Christ. Is Christ divided? Have you been baptized in the name of Paul? And then he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius so that nobody would say they're baptized in my name. Oh, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Other than that, I don't remember if I baptized anybody else. Does that, does that seem like God giving a, a, a reading for Paul to copy down? Did God forget who Paul baptized? No, that's not dictation right there. That's Paul. He forgot. He, I don't know. I may have baptized somebody else. I don't remember. That's a human thought pattern, forgetfulness. God doesn't forget. That's very human of the Scripture. Notice the human emotions. Paul has great sorrow for the people of Israel in Romans There are imprecatory psalms in Psalm 139. An imprecation is a curse. An imprecation is to throw down a curse on somebody. So if you read that language, it's, I hope my enemies perish and die. You think God's given divine dictation when he's saying that? It's hard to square with the data. There are human interests, specific ones. Luke has medical interests. When people are suffering from a fever and dysentery, those are terms used in ancient medical literature the other gospel writers use the word for fever in a singular luke always uses it in the plural which was the correct medical usage found in the hippocratic writings he's a doctor he knows how to he knows how to speak doctor that's what he does okay that's human interest reflected right in the scriptures it manifests human culture greet one another with a kiss i only apply this verse to my wife okay Women's veils were a sign of respect. That's human culture. It is portrayed throughout Scripture. The Bible utilizes other sources. The Wars of the Lords, the Book of Jehu, the Book of Gad the Seer, just to name a few. It includes all these. So the inferences, in other words, this is the indirect, this is the data that you can infer to say the Bible indirectly seems human. It doesn't say, hey, by the way, the word of thus says the Lord, this is completely written by human authors as well. But you can look at this and go, there are human authors here. This isn't, this isn't some kind of fluke. But what about directly? Are there any direct statements? Well, I think this is as close as you can get. At the end of Ecclesiastes, it says, the preacher pondered, searched out, and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words. And what was written was upright. Words of truth. Does that sound like dictation to you? Okay. He's searching for these things. He's trying to figure out what to say to pen down. Is it the Word of God? Yeah. Yeah, it is. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. That's how it begins. Paul says to Timothy, I forgot my coat. Please bring it. Does that sound like divine dictation to you? Oh yeah, by the way, Paul, remember your coat. Write that down. And re- remember the scrolls, especially the parchments. P. 
Peter says that Paul's letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Well, thank you, God. If you're dictating this stuff, why is this stuff hard to understand and not others? It's very human, is my point. Paul was a little more sophisticated. He was more educated. So yeah, some of his things are hard to understand. He makes distinctions. He makes arguments. Finally, Paul says, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord. That'd be very difficult to square with some sort of divine dictation if God's just whispering in his ear and he's like Sigourney Weaver in Ghostbusters. I don't know, some of you might remember that. This is a UP. Some of y'all are up in the, your deer blinds. You know what I'm saying? We expect like Moses to have his eyes rolled in the back of his head. It doesn't seem how it happened. This is very natural. Is it the Word of God? Yeah. Is it the Word of man? Yeah. Yeah, it is. Now, this is very important because when you say to others, I think the Bible is God's Word, they're going to say to you, well, why does it read like a first century text message? And you've got to have an answer for that. Always be ready to give an answer with gentleness and respect. Alright, so the Word of God also confirms itself as having human origins both directly and indirectly. What inspiration does not guarantee. Hang in there. I'm almost done here. I'll fly through these. What does it not guarantee? Well, it doesn't guarantee that every part of a story or parable is true. There was a certain town with an unjust judge who feared neither God or man, Jesus said. There probably was no town, but he's telling a story. That's what he's doing. It's a story. It's a parable. It doesn't mean that the story, everything in it, is necessarily true. That's not what inspiration guarantees. The point of the story is true. Remember, five virgins have their oil, five forget. Where are these virgins? I don't know. It's, just a, it's a parable. What's the, what's the point of that parable? Be ready. For you do not know when your Lord cometh. Alright, it doesn't guarantee that everything is true instead of merely taught. Satan says, when, you won't surely die when you eat that fruit. Yeah, they did. They did die in a special way. So, inspiration doesn't mean that everything that is said is true. Inspiration doesn't guarantee that there will be no hyperbole. Colossians says the gospel proclaimed to every creature under heaven. When's the last time you proclaimed the gospel to your dog or your neighbor's dog? They're creatures under heaven, aren't they? You want to dispute that point? Well, what does it mean, proclaim the gospel to every creature under heaven? That's hyperbole. It just means teach it to everybody. The gospel has to go out throughout all the earth. Those are figures of speech. We use them all the time. If somebody kicks the bucket, you don't think, tunk, right? It's not what inspiration guarantees. Inspiration does not mean that all statements about God are purely literal. Deuteronomy says, underneath are everlasting arms. Do you think about these like major mega arms coming out? No, that just means that God is upholding things by His, by his power. It doesn't mean that these statements are purely literal. It's not what inspiration guarantees. Factual assertions that are technically precise. The Bible uses round numbers. When you say how many people were in this tribe, you don't have to say the exact number all the time. A close estimate is good enough. It's still true. That's the point. Inspiration doesn't guarantee exact numbers. Facts about astronomy from a modern perspective. When Joshua said, the sun stood still, was it moving? 
Does the sun just not move all of a sudden in our solar system now? Was it moving? Was the, was the earth the center of the solar system a few thousand years ago? No. But why does it look like the sun moves for Joshua? The same reason it looks like it moves for us, because we're on the earth and it looks like the sun rises and sets. But the way they speak is just from the language of the observer. It doesn't mean that they have to make uh, modern astronomical statements. Scriptural citations must be verbatim as opposed to faithful. They don't, when they quote scripture, they don't exactly say it how it was written, but they get the main point of it. Okay? Inspiration doesn't mean that you have to say everything exactly. It doesn't mean that the scriptural citations must have the, the same application. We read in Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. They use that same scripture in the New Testament. It doesn't mean the same thing. That's okay. It's not what inspiration means. It doesn't mean that truth is exhaustively revealed. You remember Paul, for now we look in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now we know in part, then we'll know fully, even as we're fully known. All right, quoted sources are wholly true. Paul on Mars Hill is quoting Greek poets. It doesn't mean, and he's quoting a truth about Greek poets, but it doesn't mean that those Greek poets are inspired. That's not what inspiration means. It doesn't mean every source that's stated is true. I think it's in Jude where he says, uh, Enoch said something. Well, even if we do have a book of Enoch, that he's not saying that everything Enoch said is true. He's just citing it as a source. That's it. Grammatical construction will be customary instead of adequate. All right. Summary. Let's sum up here. The doctrine of inspiration is the supernatural operation of the Holy Spirit who through the different personalities and literary styles of the chosen human authors invested the very words of the original books of Holy Scripture alone and in their entirety as the very word of God without error in all that they teach or imply, including history and science, and the Bible is thereby the infallible rule and final authority for faith and practice of all believers. Whew. That's written down in your notes, by the way, so you don't have to... That's what inspiration is. It's a theanthropic work. It has a divine author and human authors. God is the ultimate cause. Humans are secondary causes, but they are authentic causes. That's important. Humans are authentic causes. While the question of how the Holy Spirit accomplished this is a matter of much speculation among theologians, two things remain clear. Number one, the end product, this thing, is infallible and inerrant. That's important. Number two, whatever the means were used. In other words, however God did it, you have to take into account the different personalities, the different styles, and the freedom of the authors manifested in their books. Why? Because that's what the data says. If you read it, that's what looks like needs to be taken into account. All right, conclusion, and then I'll let you guys out of here. Number one, most obvious. And yet, strangely, the most boring, when it should be the most exciting. We have only one book from God, and somebody will tell me we have 66 books in the Protestant canon. Yeah, I know. What I mean is, you got one rule book, okay? You want the manual from heaven? This is it. There's only one of them.
And there's nothing like it. That's a very important point. God gives us everything we need to know in here, not everything there is to know. Okay? There's plenty of other things to know, but He gives us everything we need to know. Second, as such, the Bible is an inexhaustible source of spiritual life. It's the vehicle through which God imparts Himself to us, or at least a vehicle. You could throw prayer in there too, in ministering of believers. But it's like the milk that nourishes us, 1 Peter 2. The solid food that satisfies us, Hebrews 5. Water that washes us. Fire that cleanses us. A hammer that shatters us. At last point, we're going to be taken for welding right there. It's like a sword that pierces us. The Word of God cuts deep. It gets to the problem right in here. It's like a medicine that keeps us from the sickness of sin. Like a mirror that shows us what we really look like. A lamp so that we can see. A counselor that comforts us. The Bible is all these and more. It's the eternal Word of the eternal God. Finally, we read this book to believe. We read every other book to consider. We read this book to believe. We read every other book to consider. This is the only sure roadmap we have in this life. And I not only encourage you, but beg you not to shoot yourselves in the foot by neglecting it. Do not saw off the limb that we sit on. Okay? We harm ourselves if we don't read Scripture. 1 John 5.19 says, We know the whole world lies in the sway of the wicked one. In other words, the world is Satan's. Now Christ triumphed over him, but we're still in enemy territory. Turn on the news. Jump on the internet. Or don't. But Psalm 119 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Now, if you're walking through a dark forest and you need to get somewhere on this path and you have a lamp on you, you don't hide it in your backpack. You don't hide it in your backpack and just pretend that you know where you're going. How will you know if you're still on the path in a week or two weeks or a month? How will you know if there are dangers around, if you don't have any light, if you can't see? That's what Scripture provides us. It's the spiritual light. It helps us to see. So we injure ourselves only by neglecting our Bibles. So don't do that. Instead, read it. We're out of time. I'm not going to go over the how we defend it part. Let's thank God for it and ask Him for, to see our need to, see it, to have it more clearly. Father, thank You for Your Word, which is a lamp to our feet, a light unto our path. Lord God, thank You for condescending, for uh, humbling Yourself to give us Your Word to teach us and to give us Christ to save us and to give us the Spirit of holiness who seals us until the day of of redemption. Lord, help us to see our deep, deep need for your word, to meditate on it, to hide it in our hearts. Help us read it, know it, share it. Thank you so much for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.